Are you having a hard time finding a good book to read about Twin Peaks? Did you finish binge-watching Twin Peaks in quarantine, and now you're looking for more? If so, we have the book for you. Twin Peaks Unwrapped, the book. Based off the popular show from the 1990s, read about the making of each episode from over 100 cast and crew members. This book covers Season 1, Season 2, Firewalk With Me, and Season 3. But wait, there's more! This book has commentary from the community and the host from the wildly popular podcast Twin Peaks Unwrapped. Order now! Supplies are very limited. Only $25.99 plus shipping and handling. Go to bluerosemag.com today. Welcome to this week's Twin Peaks Unwrapped. I'm your host, Brian Kazowska. Beside me is Ben Durant, as always. And this week, we are taking a break in our recapping in Season 1. Um, we're going to take a break this week because we have a very special guest. Ben, who do we have today? We have Brad Dukes. Uh, he's the writer of Reflections and Oral History of Twin Peaks. And this week is actually the one-year anniversary of the book. Welcome, Brad. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm very glad to be here. Yeah. You know, so I've been, you know, I've been collecting uh, for the past 25 years anything I could find on Twin Peaks books, magazines, uh, you know, videos. And I must say this book is, is without a doubt the best Twin Peaks resource that I've ever seen. And it's amazing, Brad. You, you've done a great job with this. Oh, well, thank you. I really tried to make something that would stand on its own and, you know, make sure that every page had something that even the most hardcore fan would not know. So that makes me very happy to hear. Yeah. And, and could you tell us what, what exactly is this book, uh, Reflections and Oral History of Twin Peaks, and how did you come about uh, uh, making it? Well, I guess at square one, I had been interviewing people for my old website that I don't really update anymore. And I kind of thought I'd run out of people to hassle into talking to me. And uh, my wife had suggested I do a book. And I was just thinking, hey, you know what? If I do a book, I think I can get some more people to talk to. Uh, and I didn't really know I was doing an oral history. Uh, I just knew I was writing a book. And, <laughs> and so it kind of just unfolded like that. I kept uh, asking people to talk to me. And, uh, you know, it didn't matter if it was Kyle McLaughlin or if it was somebody that was, uh, you know, driving the film reels to the network. I wanted to get a 360 perspective uh, of what made Twin Peaks such a, uh, a phenomenon back then, and then ultimately what led to its demise. Uh, that's something that has always puzzled me, and I've always wanted to get to the root uh, of the cause of why the show didn't last 25 years ago. So it was a about a three-year process of interviewing people and editing all those interviews into a book. And I had never written a book before, so I kind of just uh, went on my own intuition and uh, tried to be my, my own worst critic along the way. 
Well, I must say it flows amazingly together. I mean, it, it, I almost when I'm reading this, I feel like you like brought everybody that you interviewed and brought them into one room, and they're just having a conversation with each other. Like, how were you able to to really piece it together so well? It just took a lot of time. I spent countless hours editing and arranging those chapters and making sure that you know I can play off a quote off another one. And sometimes uh, you'll notice that. Some of their statements are in direct uh, contrast to each other uh, in regards to an event. Oh, yeah, I definitely I thought, see that. I thought that was important to highlight that, you know, talking to a lot of Twin Peaks alums, it's not the same story. And so I kind of like to think that the truth is somewhere in the middle. Totally. And I imagine, like, you had to come up with questions for them, too. So in some ways, were you hoping that the questions would lead – you know, to answers you were hoping for, or how does how do how do you go do about how do you go about doing that? Well, with an oral history like this, you can't really. <laughs> I mean, there's some things that you can't just shoehorn into the book. I mean, there were so many bits of information that I had to cut out, which I hope I can arrange into you know another book someday. So it was a lot of trial and error, a lot of second guessing, and uh, I actually had a great test audience. By the end of it, I let about ten of my close. Uh, friends who love Twin Peaks read it, and I got a lot of great feedback from them. So it just took a lot of time to figure out what would work uh, in narrative speaking and what did not. Yeah. And, you know, the, the, so your book comes out, and a month later the Blu-ray, uh, uh, the Twin Peaks Blu-ray comes out, and then in October the announcement of Twin Peaks uh, is getting a new season. I mean, this has been, it seems like, a really good year for you. <laughs> a little bit of advance notice that the missing pieces were coming out. I really wanted to time the release of the book with that, just because I thought it would be really exciting for fans to get you know, this book with a lot of new information, along with something that some people have been waiting you know, over 20 years for. Yeah. So I thought that was my last big window to piggyback onto some publicity of Twin Peaks. <laughs> uh, so, you know, I was as shocked as anybody uh, when October came around and they said that it was coming back on Showtime. Uh, I, don't, I think that, kept, that caught everybody by surprise outside of uh, Lynch and Frost. Yeah, and, and t tell me, I, I mean, I think I've read it, but I would love to uh, for our listeners to hear, how did you first get introduced to Twin Peaks? My first exposure to the show was in the summer of 1990. ABC was doing a rerun of the first season, and that uh, rerun was leading up to the second season. So somewhere in the summer of 90, I believe I caught some of the pilot. My mom was watching it in the kitchen, and, you know, I caught it caught my eye, and I just got sucked into it like a tractor beam. And, uh, <laughs> I mean, from there on, I was just hooked. I was absolutely obsessed with Agent Cooper and the Log Lady. And, you know, I actually was even more excited and interested when the second season came along, and you've got these figures like the Giant and Killer oh, yeah. Bob coming oh, to the yeah. forefront. It just added this whole other layer that made me even more obsessed with the show. Something and, and I don't know if you said it. Or I read that you, yeah, you were nine years old when you saw it, and and I know your mom and you watched it together. Is that right? <laughs> wow. Yeah, my mom. My mom uh, still feels bad about that. I mean, <laughs> I think she's kind of embarrassed uh, about my uh, introduction to the book, where I talk about how she was watching it and she let me watch it. I mean, no nine-year-old should be watching Twin Peaks. So oh, it's yeah. it's it, really funny in hindsight. Well, you know, I was 15 years old. 
And uh, my mom hated the show and she said it was evil. And even to this day, I think I just told her the show was coming back. And she's like, I can't believe I let you watch that show. And so even to this day. And now you do a podcast. I do a podcast. <laughs> and, I, and I turned out right. I didn't become a killer. Nothing yeah, wrong yeah. happened. And stuff, but it's, <laughs> it's kind of funny. But yeah, I th- actually, I think it's cool, though. But the great thing was that you and your mom watched it together. I mean, a lot of times we, you know, we have, you know, there's all this issue of like kids do things, but they're doing it on their own. And to have your mom there and you probably got to talk about the show together. I think I think that's really cool. Yeah, I think I've said this before, but when I look back on it, I almost think watching it as a kid, some of the characters like Cooper or the Log Lady are almost like Sesame Street characters. Hmm. That's funny. As a kid, if you you know see somebody walking around with a log, you don't think it's that weird. It's just like, oh, you know, that lady likes her log. Yeah. <laughs> That's too funny. Whereas if you look at it as an adult, you're like, why in the hell would you know a grown woman be carrying a log around talking right. to it? So. And so. Uh, I, I I love to talk about uh, the Twin Peaks Festival. You've gone to a few. I, I think you're going again this year. What has that experience been like for you? Oh, man. I love the festival. Uh, I started going in 2008, and ever since I think I've missed one year. Um, I've, I've met so many good friends up there, and I used to live up in the Seattle area, so it's mm-hmm. great to revisit that place and also reconnect with all my friends. And I always make new friends, and, uh, you know, it's in some cases, I keep up with these people on a weekly basis, uh, and it's uh, it's just a great place to visit. And if you are, you know, any Twin Peaks fan, <laughs> that first visit up there is oh. very magical. I mean, nothing beats seeing the Double R Diner in person or, you know, the waterfall that you see in the credits. Yeah, and I still haven't gotten to go. I mean, I've been wanting to go for like 23 years. So we got to go. Yeah, we got to go. We're Maybe going next year. Next year. Let's save up for it. Yeah, that'd be awesome. But Yeah, uh, awesome. I'll show you around. That'd be cool. And la- last year, what was the experience like? I think you, you had your book with you then, right? Yeah, uh, I brought my my book had just been released, and I uh, took it there to sell, and I sold everything I brought. So that felt really good. Nice. Nice. And they and they did, they do they showed um a sneak preview of the missing pieces or was the the Blu-ray out yet? I can't remember now uh, when the Oh gosh, I think the Blu-ray had come out that week. Okay. And I believe the festival couldn't really get the clearance to show that. Um oh. just a little too soon. Okay. So yeah, but yeah, I mean I'm I I'm definitely curious to go sometime because it seems like there's so many great things to do and We could do it then. We can do it. All right. We'll save up. <laughs> I, I am serious. I think we should go. Yeah, definitely. It sounds it seems like an experience. So back to the book. You know, I was really impressed, too, that you were able to get Kyle McLaughlin, uh, you know, an interview with him. Because, I mean, like Wrapped in Plastic Magazine, they had 75 issues. They were never able to get uh, an interview with him. So, wow. I mean, you got some great interviews for this book. Yeah. I mean, a lot of those interviews, uh, especially with some of the bigger names, did not come easy. It took a lot of hustling and <laughs> And patience. Uh, there were a couple of instances where I waited over a year wow. uh, to get somebody uh, down on an interview. Uh, so it took a lot of patience, and I think it just taught me a lot about uh, staying staying true to the mission and uh, being persistent because it will pay off. Yeah, and you. I, I believe you. It was like almost a hundred people you interviewed. Yeah, I think I only made about. I could only fit about 90 people into the book, so there were almost a dozen other people I literally did not have room for, uh, which was frustrating. I mean, on one hand, I self-published this book and had complete creative control, but it was very important to strike that balance where a casual fan can enjoy this 
all the while I'm entertaining, you know, the hardest core of fans. So that balance was tricky, and it also led to a lot of stuff that I just couldn't fit into the book. And have you have you run into people that have like have had very little uh fami- not are not familiar with Twin Peaks that have read the book and learned more about it or like what what has your experience been from people who have read it? Well, you know this whole revival on Showtime I think has you know perked a lot of ears up. There were so many people that watched that first season mm-hmm. that where if Twin Peaks comes up in conversation now, even if they haven't seen it since then, they remember it. Um, and that's basically because it just had so much media exposure. Um, I did a book event up in uh, Madison, Wisconsin in February, and there were a few people uh, that, you know, were just kind of revisiting the show for the first time. Hmm. And they were kind of flipping through the book going, oh, my God, I had no idea you know, this happened or that happened. Hmm. Um, but I, I can't say I've talked to anybody, uh, you know, that maybe had just watched it on Netflix and bought the book. That would be very interesting. That would be something. Yeah, I mean, you really. I I, th- I was uh, so impressed how you wrote this book, and 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 you were so driven to seem to get so many different people. I mean, you went beyond just the cast. I mean, the uh, the actor who plays Agent um, Rosenfield. You talked about uh, how he modeled after like a close friend growing up, and then you actually went and interviewed that guy. And I thought that was really impressive because that's beyond just even going after the cast. I mean. And how did the, how did something like that go about? Did you just ask? I think uh, Miguel uh, Fer- Ferrer, Ferrer? Yes, M- Miguel Ferrer, yes, Fer- who was also a very difficult gentleman uh, to get on the phone. Uh, I hassled his uh, manager <laughs> relentlessly, and I finally <laughs> broke her down. But uh, to get back to your question, a lot of and it kind of goes back to another question you asked. When I went into an interview. No matter who it was, I just tried to listen and find openings. And if someone mentioned a name that I had never heard of or recognized, I would say, could you tell me more about that person? You know, are you friends with them? And Mm -hmm. so a lot of that branched out into other things. Uh, You know, I – one of my most interesting interviews was with a gentleman named Ken Shearer, who was the CEO of Lynch Frost Productions. Mm -hmm. And and really only one of the people uh, throughout the entirety of Twin Peaks – they had a lot of access to both Mark and David because, as we all know, their participation uh, was up and down throughout <laughs> parts yeah. of the series. So to hear uh, straight from the guy who was really managing Twin Peaks as a franchise was really something and very eye-opening. Yeah, I'm so impressed that you were to get him and these other people that were like executives to ABC and the people that really behind the scenes and they were really open about sharing uh, – the experience and what it took to actually, you know, make this show. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see. I, I, I definitely, I, I definitely have things in the book. I mean, is there a favorite thing that that you learned about Twin Peaks through these interviews? <laughs> I mean, so many. There's so oh, much. <laughs> you know, I have to be honest. A lot of it, you know, just uh, dissolves into one big mess for me because, oh, yeah. you know, it's kind of going through hundreds of conversations and hundreds of hours on the phone. Uh, but I do remember Leslie Linkaglatter, the director uh, of a few episodes. She was actually the the hunchback in One-Eyed Jacks, and I really got a kick out of that. Yeah, I had notes about that to talk about that. That like To me, that was like... 
a big mystery for me on in season one. It was like, who is that seamstress, seamstress, uh, yeah. uh, hunchback lady? Because like, it definitely feel like this person was made up. And she, you know, she's, she's. I think she's putting the card on Audrey and One Eye Jacks. And I was like, she seems like somebody. And for years, I mean, I, I think a lot of people thought, well, maybe it's a reference to grim fairy tales or something like that. But mm. for you to be able to find that information, I thought that was a big win. And I was like, oh, right. I mean, we finally figure out who that person is. So that was awesome. <laughs> and then you get a picture. I mean, you've got some great pictures. But to have that picture with uh, the actor who played Ben Horn and to have her in that, I thought that was really amazing to get. How'd you find? How'd you get those pictures? I mean, you just asked uh, as you were doing interviews, or? Yeah, I would sort of ask around, and really, most of the pictures in there are from uh, the makeup artist, and uh, her name is Carla Fabrici, and she literally had boxes of these pictures in her wow. basement. And I remember she sent me the first batch of them, and I was just floored. That's I, I something. Just, I felt like I had broken into uh, the warehouse at the end of Raiders of the Lost. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Just tearing through stuff and going like, oh, my God, I can't believe this. Uh, so that was really fun. Oh, yeah. And it, it, so it, there's so, there's so many different stories. There's one where, where, where you find out that Ray Wise was the one that had the idea to throw Leland uh, – uh, for Leland to throw himself on the ca- castic, casket uh, in the funeral scene. And I thought that was really cool, and I, I would have just assumed it was like David Lynch, Mark Frost idea. And uh, and you kind of get the sense from this book that a lot of people were contributing, that they were very open to actors having suggestions and other directors bringing their own ideas where it wasn't just Mark Frost and David Lynch. And, yeah, uh, I mean, especially if you take into account when this show was made. I mean, they gave a lot of the directors so much latitude. I did hear that they weren't allowed to change the script in any way uh, in the first season, like with actual dialogue. Hmm. But... You know, I know Leslie Gladder and uh, some of the other directors said that, you know, Lynch and Frost and the producers were very open to their ideas. I don't think everything happened, <laughs> but, uh, you know, they were pretty considerate of uh, the individual vision. Yeah. Definitely, the first season was so tight. I felt like there was so. I mean, it, like it was really, really yeah. tight show, and if, you could tell that Mark Frost and, and I guess David Lynch too probably really had mapped it all out for, at least for the first season very tightly. Um, yeah, I have mean, um, I, I, I have, a, I have a, uh, an email from one of our listeners that I, if you don't mind me reading, and then I would just go into a question for you. If that's okay. Sure. All right. So, or do you want uh, Brian? Do you want to read this? No, or? no, you got oh, it. All right, you all got right. it. You got it. So this is, comes from John. Hi, guys. I've been enjoying the show and want to drop my two cents about the uh, d- discrepancies between the dream sequence we saw and how the next morning Cooper is describing the European pilot version. David Lynch was filming Wild at Heart during the majority of the filming of season one. So this his episode, the one with the dream sequence, was filmed last. That means when last week's episode was filmed, no one had any idea how exactly the European ending was going to be incorporated. So they only... The only continu- continuality available was the pilot ending. I assume they de- de- I, I assume they decided su- summarizing it would be well enough, since o- o- over detailing would o- would come. O- I'm sorry, would come off better than under detailing, especially since the viewers could brush it off as someone trying to describe dream logic. So I guess my my que- my question for you is 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 can you confirm? I think you say this in the book. Can you confirm that David Lynch kind of did episode two? To, too out of order like he was busy then yes. What? yeah yes I, I can confirm that because uh i have in my possession copies of 
the actual filming schedules for the first season. Wow. wow. <laughs> How that was kind of mapped out was, let's see here. <laughs> okay, so uh, episode two, which is David Lynch's uh, you know, second episode, was actually filmed towards the end of the first season uh, between episode six and seven. Wow. That scene in episode three where uh, Cooper says that uh, there's the discrepancies between episode two and the pilot ending, the Red Room scene, uh, that episode three was filmed about uh, probably a month or two before episode two was actually filmed. So that may have been lost in translation with editing, and episode three may have already been cut. Right. Uh, So that's probably where that discrepancy came from. Isn't that something? But yes, I can confirm uh, episode two was filmed uh, almost at the end of season one. That's something. And it's interesting if it it happened between six and seven, probably Mark Frost was prepping to direct episode seven. So it's kind of funny to have David Lynch actually, you know, directing and have Mark Frost in in the process of of directing at probably at the same time. Yeah. And and you kind of shared uh, that. To give you a little anecdote there, if you notice, uh, episode two, six, and seven are the only episodes that show uh, the interior of One-Eyed Jack in the Hmm. first season. Huh. uh, there were two days in December of 89 where Lynch, Frost, and Caleb Deschanel were all kind of trading their scenes uh, at that location. Isn't that something? And yeah, I think you've shared that it was, it was a warehouse that it was all shot on. And so it was like, I think it was all the all the sets were kind of in the same space. So it's, it's oh, kind of cool. Yeah. That was something yeah, else. Yeah, that was all crammed into a warehouse uh, off Balboa Boulevard in Van Nuys. It's so funny. I went there one time. I didn't go inside, but I just kind of wanted to see where <laughs> David Lynch and Mark Frost drove to work to make this show. <laughs> and it's so funny because it's like just this totally rundown neighborhood with like, you know, these old mechanic garages mm-hmm. and and like I don't know uh, tire factories. <laughs> so it, it was uh, you know humble a humble place to make a show. That's something. And talking about the red room, I also love that you 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 got an interview where they talked about. Uh, putting spotlights and trying to make the the curtains the red curtains brighter and and they brought up the fact that it was um a shadow of the bird which I think we always knew but it was it, it was it's not always quite clear that there's this kind of shadow going on in the background as the little man from another place is rubbing his hands and stuff but I'm so glad you got that the only thing is me be, being somebody who loves behind the scenes is like oh but how did you make that bird did you use uh, you know cardboard <laughs> or was it metal or but that was a great I was so glad you got that information. Yeah, I think, I mean, I remember talking to Ron Garcia, who shot uh, Firewalk with me in the pilot episode. Hmm. And, I mean, I had to condense uh, some of his descriptions down to make it fit. Uh, I mean, some of the Red Room techniques, especially in the pilot, uh, I know were very challenging to get right. Uh, just because I know David Lynch, everyone says he's so, he's not picky, but he's just got to have what he sees, or else it's just not good enough. Uh, so I know they spent a lot of painstaking time uh, making that first red room scene right, and to me, what's so incredible about that is that like, this is this is the European pilot. Like you know, David Lynch is like, I'm not gonna just slap something together. I you know, I want to make it special. And so he, you know, this isn't supposed to even be part of the TV show. And he's like, I'm gonna make this red room. And but first, I think, I mean, I heard this. I think through, I read this through Lynch on Lynch on Lynch, where he was he was kind of uh, resting on a car and he could feel the heat of the car, and that made him think about the red room. And he came up with this whole idea. But it's amazing to see that they put so much effort into this for something that. At least originally, it wasn't going to probably air on on America TV. 
Exactly. I, I mean, I still think that's just one of the most <laughs> crazy visual things. And, you know, who's to say if he hadn't done that, what would the Black Lodge have ended up being in uh, the grand finale? <laughs> yeah. Brian's taking his, you don't know what the Black Lodge is. Brian has no idea what the Black Lodge is. We're not <laughs> yeah, I don't know what that is. But but you're totally right, I mean, Brad. Like, uh, sorry. No, 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 that's all right. He doesn't know what that the, what I the haven't words, gotten that far But yet. that's all right. You don't know what the words mean, but I, I'm going to yeah, agree yeah. with you, Brad, that like, yeah, and, and you could even look at the script to the last episode and, and wonder where it could have gone and stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm so thankful that uh, Lynn came up <laughs> with, with the Red Room and stuff. It's... It's amazing stuff. I mean, we start with a red room and with a black lodge. Yep. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Don't think too much about it, Brian. I'm not. I'm not. But, and Brian, you were saying that like you became hooked on the show. I mean, you've only been watching the show for about a month, right? I mean, re- a little. Well, yeah. I mean, I started watching it. Um, I got the Blu-rays for Christmas, and when we decided to do this podcast, I was like, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hold off until we start, we start recording. But I started watching it in the beginning of May. Okay. But April, it, May, yeah. April-ish, yeah. May-ish, yeah. But when you got to that Red Room scene, I think that's when you got hooked. I mean, that's yep. when you realized this is a show yeah, I want to yeah. watch. <laughs> yeah, that was, the, that was the scene for me. I was like, I, I, I could have just kept watching it, but I got to pace myself. You, you know, did. I don't want to go too ahead. But yeah. Even though you were saying it was a soap opera. I mean, it, was <laughs> it, it had the soap opera feel to it in the yeah. beginning, yeah. I think everything gets better as the show progresses. Like the acting and everything. You get the feel. Uh, for me, I'm watch. Like I said, I was just too. Uh, my brain has been programmed for newer shows. So when I watch something like this, I'm like, "This is not what I'm used to." But then I have to remember, well, this was in 1990 on network television, so things are a little bit different. Yeah. So it's also ahead of its time, I think. Something like this on network television in 1990, that's crazy. It is, and and I think I mean, and I think you say that in the book that it was really. Uh, it was it was ABC desperate. I mean, they were desperate for for something new, and they were the, the you know they're they're at the bottom of the ratings and stuff. And they they were yeah yeah. Well, if you go back and look at ABC's programs, I think starting in like the '88 season, they really started coming up with some cool stuff. Um, even uh, both on the dramatic and uh, comedy side. I mean, Roseanne and The Wonder Years, hmm. uh, for an example. I mean, those yeah. just were such atypical sitcoms. And they really, I remember watching them when I was little with my family, and they just connected on just some other level than, say, the Cosby show. Uh, <laughs> Definitely, yeah. Uh, I mean, cheers. I can't, with all the Bill Cosby stuff, I'm going to quit using the Cosby show as a reference point. <laughs> yeah, good idea, good idea. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, they, I, there was a gentleman named Brandon Stoddard who was the president of ABC when they signed Twin Peaks, and he just had an eye for quality. And uh, and also there's a guy named Chad Hoffman who uh, is in Reflections, and he also just had this really great uh, instinct for quality television. Wow, isn't that something? And they took a chance on him. Yeah, they yeah. took a chance, which is, is amazing. Even though you I mean it's it's amazing. Your book really shares too how long it really took from going from like from making the pilot to them saying okay to the pilot and then making a series. I mean, it seems like it took like a year or so. B- from after they did the pilot to actually approve of it actually getting on the air. Yeah, the pilot didn't air on ABC until uh, I think it was uh, a full year since they wrapped. Yeah. Uh, wow. Pretty impressive, and I, I didn't want that to be lost on people. Uh, Twin Peaks was not an overnight success. It was a couple of years of of trying to get this thing on the air. And 
I don't know if you can give me more detail about it. It seems like Frost and Lynch had, you know, final cut approval. I mean, I believe they, they own the company. They own the rights. To, I mean, basically, they own Twin Peaks. Is that right? I mean, that's pre- it's pretty much their – I mean, nobody, el- nobody else can go and make Twin Peaks, really, without Frost and Lynch. While I was doing the book, it was to my understanding that David and Mark uh, co-owned Twin Peaks as a property. Yeah. They have ever since uh, the 90s. I don't know where that stands now. I don't know if CBS, which is the co- parent company of Showtime, owns it or not. Um, that's unclear to me. Okay. So. Yeah, it's something. Because I, I was just thinking of like other shows that I liked, X-Files or Lost and stuff. And, that, and those yeah. shows were not really owned by the, the creators and stuff like that. I mean, they can go off yeah. and do other things. Yeah, but. I mean, uh, David and Mark really hedged their bets uh, and you know did some – negotiating and outside financing for the property uh, on that pilot episode. So, I mean, they really put a personal stake into it. Oh, yeah. And it's funny. It's funny. They needed to do that so that they could make it the way they wanted to. But by doing that, it kind of messed things up with the pilot where it was owned owned by uh, by somebody else and then trying to get them to be, to put it on DVD. Oh, with wow. That. And yeah, that. yeah. But, I mean, I, I think it had to be done. I don't know if there was another way to do it, but... Uh. Man. It did mess up the uh, the home video releases a little bit, and uh, you know, I, I can say to anybody, if you're coming in as a Twin Peaks fan now, you are so lucky that you didn't have to deal with <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Twin Peaks on home video because it was a nightmare. Um, I remember buying a DVD player in I think 1998 for the sole reason of watching Twin Peaks, and uh, the whole the whole thing uh, was not released until 2007, so it was. A long, painful wait. Yeah. So wow. even uh, even when it, the first set of DVDs still didn't have the pilot, I don't think it was till the golden gold box till they finally included the pilot in there. So yeah, wow. it, it was a long wait. I had I had a VHS copy. I think it was probably off the air. It was just recorded off the air where I would have to watch it if I was in, you know interested in that. And yeah. Then. Yeah, and I think you mentioned the book about like college students and stuff. I was one of these college students that I would bring. I had my whole collection, <laughs> and I would round up. I would round up all my friends, and everybody's like, well, "You guys, you haven't seen Twin Peaks? You got to check this out <laughs> and stuff." Because it was it was a good time and stuff. Uh, oh man! Oh, I gotta tell you a real quick story. Um, yeah. A few years ago, at this old job I had, there was this uh, girl in my department who I just did not like, and she did not like me. We didn't get along at oh. all, and so you know I would avoid this person and. And blah, blah, blah. And anyway, one day she walks by my desk, and uh, she stopped, and I was like, what does this person want? <laughs> and she said, uh, does that say Twin Peaks Festival on your ink pen? And I was like, yeah. And she was like, I used to love that show in college. And we became, like, totally good friends from that's there. That's <laughs> too funny. Wow. It's funny we'll, we'll so, bring uh, people together. Yeah, yeah, that's bring, cool. It brings people together. That's awesome. And so I, I'm still curious, like, so before even thinking about doing the book, how did you go about uh, the, doing interviews with, for people? Like, was that w- – were you just really fascinated with Twin Peaks and, and thought maybe if, if you could contact people to learn more about the show? Or how did that come about? Well, it's kind of funny. Um, one of the very first interviews I ever did was with Mark Frost. Um, wow. That's something. I started tweeting at him on Twitter uh, before, you know, any – before a lot of people had figured out who he was, and he responded to me every time I said something to him. And oh, wow. it was a real thrill because, uh, you know, I just admire his work so much. And so, uh, you know, I think he was a big fan of my website, and so I could always throw his name around uh, if I wanted to interview someone for the, the webpage. Hmm. And 
Also, um, I've made a few friends with people like uh, Charlotte Stewart and Kimmy Robertson at the Twin Peaks Festival. So uh, it was kind of just a gradual process building a network. That's awesome. That's that's really something. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's it shows. I mean, you really really done an amazing job with the book. Do you have some questions, Brian? Is there something you want to? Oh tell no, me? I mean, it's it's cool that you could just reach out to him on Twitter like that, and he responded to you, and. It's sort of like what we're doing now, like you're doing, Ben. You're reaching out to people, and people respond. And yeah, I think that show the fact that you, everybody has the same thing in common, the love of this show. I don't know. It's 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 like the gate. It's like the golden ticket to get inside, <laughs> you know. And yeah. I'm sorry. You just said yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, but I think it would be cool for us. To go to the fest next year. I'm serious, Ben. I really th- all right. We'll talk about it. I, only if, if Brad's there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I mean, <laughs> if we continue with this show, I mean, hopefully yeah. we'll get more interviews and stuff. But yeah. Um. So, and and Brad, what, um, what was it that like? What were some of the favorite parts of the first season? Since we're only f- focused on the first season, do you have some uh, some things that you love about the show from the first season? Oh, man. Well, I think the first season of Twin Peaks is really the template for a lot of the quality television you see now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just think everybody takes a page from it. And I think yeah. everybody also learned what not to do from the second season. <laughs> you know, I think the first season teaches people in television now you have to have a vision uh, from point A to point B or else you just are going to spin out of control. Um so, you know, and, and now I think a lot of television works best on a smaller scale, these, you know, eight, nine, ten episode seasons. Um, I mean, I think you can stretch the quality of anything too far. Mm, yeah, I think yeah. I would be hard-pressed to name you any television shows that really do incredible moving storytelling over the span of 22 episodes on a network. It's just... It's, it's a lot. And... So, you know, I just think Mark and David had a vision, and they were dedicated to making it right. And, uh, you know, I know Mark, uh, he scrutinized every script in that first season and made sure they were just airtight. Um, and so I think that's why season one is so good. It was just a matter of timing because um, there was just nothing like that at the time. Oh yeah, and I you know I loved about the first season where were all these kind of Easter eggs where, where there were like these names that were really from other TV shows or their movies or or books or something like that and like it was something that was it was really cool in the first season and it just kind of was dropped in in the second season I don't really see a lot of that I don't know if it was because David and Mark were both busy doing other things that there wasn't that 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 kind of playfulness I guess that they once had yeah well I think there are a few in the second season I know that. Uh, when uh, Peggy Lipton and um, oh, the guy that plays Roger Hardy, I'm, I'm forgetting his name, they have a little moment in the diner, and they were co-stars on the Mod Squad. That's right, there yeah. Are a few little asides like and, and inside jokes. Yeah, yeah. A really close attention. Now, Bree just talking about the second season. You, you, you have something else I've never heard before where – it was possible that that Steven Spielberg might have directed the uh, the season premiere of the second season. Oh do, my lord! Do you think that was there really any chance of that happening? Do you think? Uh, well, I think there was a chance. I think if David Lynch had been up for it, it would have happened. I know. Oh gosh, this is funny. Uh, Michael Onkin had sent me this uh, letter that Steven Spielberg had sent to uh, the president of ABC, saying, 
don't cancel Twin Peaks. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> but this really heartfelt, like, uh, elaborate letter, and it was like, yeah, this guy loved Twin Peaks. So wow. I think I think if the cards had been right and the timing was right, he would have come back and, you know, maybe did another episode. Uh, but I think he was filming Hook at the time. Okay. So in hindsight, I really wish he, uh, Hook had never come out. <laughs> Twin Peaks. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. Oh man! So, is there anything else you? Or, I mean, I, yeah, I'd love to. Is there anything else that you want you want um, our our audience to know about the book that that you think would be really good? That I mean, everybody who likes Twin Peaks should be picking this up. I I'm mean, excited to read it. Yeah, I'm very excited. Yeah, well, what's so exciting about the book and what I'm so proud of is that, you know, it, it's worth your money. Uh, it, if you love Twin Peaks, I think this book is going to be a great companion piece because it's very confined to the time frame of 1988 through 1991, mm. you're getting firsthand stories uh, told in a specific narrative uh, so you can understand what made the show successful and ultimately what tore it apart. And in hindsight, it's just so, it's like a, a study piece of what you should and shouldn't do in television. And Twin Peaks is obviously my favorite TV show ever. Yeah, uh, so me too. For me, it was just an absolute blast. I had the most fun of my life, uh, you know, talking to people who made the show. And uh, I'm just so happy it's coming back. Um, me too. It, it blows my mind. I really, it still doesn't seem real to me. I think it will seem real once I actually see it come back. So right. I definitely can't wait for that. And you said you might do another book. Would it be a new edition, or do you think it'd be a whole other book on uh, interviewing new people, or, or what do you think? Um, I would probably avoid doing a new edition unless I could get, you know, somebody like David Lynch or somebody really huge. Uh, otherwise, I would really like to do a book of odds and ends, hmm. maybe uh, deleted chapters and maybe Q and A's that uh, still have a lot of interesting information I couldn't fit in. Um, and maybe some new interviews, too. Um, I've found some people uh, after the fact that I'd love to have talked to uh, about Twin Peaks. And I've continued to learn more even to this day. Uh, I'm still hunting down people that I've never talked to. So it's kind of a never-ending quest. Yeah. <laughs> so is, is, are you always thinking about about that? I mean, like, do you think when you go to the festival uh, this month that you might try to get in some more interviews? Or, or just are you just going to be relaxing and having a good time? Or? This year will be pretty much relaxing and having a good time. Uh, I will have the book for sale uh, at the sign-in and throughout the weekend. So if anybody comes to the festival and wants to buy a book and chat, you know, I would love that. Uh, otherwise, I will be taking it very easy and geeking out with everybody. <laughs> awesome. And where can people find your book? Uh, listeners can find my book on Amazon. Also, uh, it's offered on Kindle. And I believe Barnes and Noble and a few assorted independent bookstores in Chicago and Richmond, Virginia carry it as well. If you want to support those brick and mortar stores, awesome, cool. Well, I think it's good. I think we're so happy to have you on the show, Brad. I mean, it was something, and I I love the book. It really, I really can't say it enough that like anybody who's into Twin Peaks should be reading this book. I mean, it's it's a it's a must. So thank oh, thanks. Well, uh, I'll definitely stay tuned to your show and see how uh, the next few episodes are accepted. Uh, it's a very interesting, turbulent, and explosive time for the show. Yeah. And it's, you know, r worth revisiting over and over, in my opinion. Definitely. Yeah, yeah. 
And so I, I think uh, we we're gonna we'll just we'll have some that we'll just uh, close out. And then I think Brad, you said that you'd read a little bit from your book to close this out. So why don't we just yeah, yeah that'd yeah, be awesome. I, Thank you. I usually uh, will read a selection from the author's note, but I think I'm gonna read the introduction for you guys. I think that sounds good. Excellent. Thank you. So uh, we're gonna be closing out, uh, Brian. Yep. Um, where can people uh, <laughs> okay, contact? You can like us on Facebook. Twin Peaks Unwrapped on Facebook, and we're exploding on Twitter. Uh, Twitter is becoming our home base for social media. Yeah, Twin Peaks Unwrapped or Twin Peaks Unwrapped if you search for us. Yeah, and, and believe it or not, if you just Google Twin Peaks, like I typed in Twin Peaks in Google search, and then Unwrapped came up, and we just were right by, there. Wait, just doing Twin Peaks? Well, probably because I unwrapped? searched for oh, it a yeah, lot. Yeah, they've got your cookies or something yeah, yeah. like that. I was trying to make us <laughs> pop up first. But right. you can Google us, and you'll get all information. But you can go to our webpage www.twinpeaksunwrapped.com. Our podcast there, the links to everything are there. Um, and you can subscribe to us on iTunes. And please email us. Uh, who sent that email to so us? So John did? John did. Yeah. Thank you, Thank John. You, John. Um, we appreciate the feedback. And if you have questions, comments, or anything, please just email us at uh, uh, twinpeaksunwrapped at gmail.com. And I think that's it for uh, for all our plugs. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and 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 for, I think Brad's already said. I mean, yep. uh, where is that? What is it for Twitter? You have, uh, I think it's by the book Twin Peaks book. Is it? Is that? Yeah, that's that's my uh, Twin Peaks account. I have a personal account, so I don't, <laughs> I don't have to punish all my uh, other friends with my <laughs> Twin Peaks teasing. Yeah. So uh, twi- at Twin Peaks book, yes. Very cool. cool. All right. Cool. Uh, yeah, please, uh, if you if you would, uh, if you could read a little bit of, from the book. That'd be great. Bro. Sure, here we go. Uh, here's the introduction to Reflections and Oral History of Twin Peaks. Countless television series have come and gone over the last 65 years, but few have managed to lead a profound and perplexing life as Twin Peaks. Six months before premiering on the American Broadcasting Company in April of 1990, Twin Peaks was hyped as the series that may change it all on the cover of Connoisseur Magazine, and a rogue wave of publicity was born. Defying skeptical ABC executives, 35 million viewers t- tuned in for Twin Peaks' broadcast debut, the tale of an enigmatic federal agent investigating the slaying of a small-town homecoming queen, bewitched audiences, and propelled the catchphrase, who killed Laura Palmer, into the national conversation. A rapid, a rabid cult of fans was born, and a media circus stretched throughout the summer as stars of the show appeared on magazine covers and late-night talk shows with Johnny Carson and David Letterman. The frenzy became intoxicating as Twin Peaks received a record-breaking Emmy nomination, won three Golden Globes, and spawned a book on the New York Times bestseller list. More than a routine crime procedural, Twin Peaks was capable of being melodramatic, hilarious, and downright terrifying within the span of minutes. Coffee, donuts, and cherry pie were consumed in mass quantity. A middle-aged woman with an eye patch was obsessed with inventing silent drape runners. A ponytailed truck driver attacked his wife with a bar of soap stuffed in a sock. Twin Peaks was unclassifiable and undefined, yet still engrossing to both viewers and critics, yearning for the next generation of distinguished television. In its second season, network politics and creative differences induced a string of bizarre episodes and abysmal ratings. Fans were confused, the cast and crew were disillusioned, and the show vanished in in a puff of smoke upon its cancellation. If you speak with the individuals who brought Twin Peaks to life, it is evident that something magical happened. Stories of fame, friendship, and inspiration live in their memories. 
along with the show's shortcomings and suspicious demise. Actors, directors, musicians, crew members, and yes, even network executives transcended the customs of mass media, and the result was Twin Peaks. You might call it a good old-fashioned murder mystery. And that's that.